Don't go look at a recipe and then go to the store and buy that stuff. Just buy stuff that's good and keep it around in the house and then figure out what to make with the stuff that's in the house. That's that's how people have always cooked. Mark, we're so excited to have you on the show. Are you sure? Yes. No, I... You have no idea how excited I was about this. I have been a longtime fan for a very, very long time. Mark Bittman, host, current host, podcast host of Food with Mark Bittman. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Finally. Thank you. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> we had we had a little bit of a rocky start getting technology down, but we're here. We're so excited to have you. I am assuming most people know who you are, but for those who don't, here's the question that we usually ask when you're at a party, in your case, probably a dinner party, some very sophisticated dinner party, mm. and people ask, what do you do? What do you say? So if someone says, what do you do? I say, I write about food, which is really sort of not even true, but I've been saying it for so long that I, you know, if I really got into what I did, if it's somebody that I want to communicate with, then, you know, there's a lot to talk about because I do a lot of different stuff. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good synopsis. For those <laughs> who don't know, Mark wrote a column for the New York Times for, what, 30 years? Yeah, 25, but yeah. Something. Okay. Long time and has written like 30 cookbooks and won James Beard Awards. That was a very short synopsis of some of the incredible things you've done. And so how did you get there? Like what started your career? How'd you get there? I started writing when I was really young, but I didn't write about food until I, long after I learned how to cook. I started really cooking seriously when I was about 20. And I really started writing about food when I was 30. And in between, I was cooking. Now, I just since COVID, I really feel like, God, I'm like a person who's addicted to cooking. If I'm home, I cook. And if I'm away for more than a few days, yeah, I just start jonesing for it. I can't stand it. So I guess it's relaxation or just, as I said, maybe it's just an obsession at this point. No, I get that. Cooking is, is cathartic for me, honestly. What made you start cooking then? I know I watched your TED Talk and you talked about your mom and how she was like just made very normal things. The thing that she did, I mean, and and... Most everybody, my age at least, had moms who stayed home and and cooked every day. And we owe them big for that. And me especially, because, you know, my mom taught me that cooking every day was an important thing. I think I went away to college and the food was just so shitty. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. but You are. You are. Okay. Well, the food was so shitty that I, I got an apartment and just thought, I'm going to just cook because it can't be worse than... What they're giving me, and at the beginning, I was, you know, cooking hamburgers and scrambled eggs and stuff like that. Then I lived by myself for a couple of years and really focused on just bought cookbooks and exploring it. And, you know, I was young. I was finding my way. I mean, we're talking about someone in his early 20s. So it was not like I wasn't going to graduate school. I wasn't. You know, I didn't have a great job or anything. I was driving a cab. I had a lot of time. I was figuring stuff out. And cooking just felt like something that I was really enjoying and becoming good at. Well, it became a beautiful thing. I mean, as far as dream things I could make money at, cooking and writing about food doesn't sound too bad. No, Um, it hasn't been bad at all. It's an incredible journey you've had. So I guess now we get to the whole point of this show. It's a hard question. 
But the question we ask is, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? You know, I thought about that because you were kind enough to send me in advance and long before I was at the Times and when I was freelancing. And I, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to sell articles and it wasn't easy to make a living. And, and a guy named Ray Sokoloff, who, who I really looked up to in those days and still would if I ever saw him, said to me, you should try writing about food not for food magazines, not for food venues. Write about food for places that don't feature food. And I think that was that really was a good piece of advice because it sort of took me out of the food and wine, bon appetit, gourmet in those days, the kind of feeling like the way you'd make it as a food writer would be to be a writer for food and wine or be a writer for gourmet. And in fact, when I started writing for the Times and for Business Week and for Time Magazine, all kinds of like different places that really did not focus on food, it freed me up a lot. I know, I, I, I think that was, a, for some reason, that's what seems like a really important piece of advice for me. And uncommon, you know, it wasn't like work hard every day. I mean, you know, I could say that, but that goes without saying. Yeah. No. I think, I mean, there's always something to be said, though, about reframing who your audience is. And I, I think with anything, if you come off more authentic and you don't zone in so much on the details of something, it automatically increases like your output and what you're putting out there. So I think that's beautiful. Do you have a best piece of advice for like life that doesn't have to do with your career, something that someone's given you about life that you've always remembered? I mean, everything, you know, sometimes you're going to say stuff that's like so corny, but it's meant, it became corny because everybody thinks it, you know? Yeah. The thing is, I wasn't passionate about writing about groovy food stuff. I was passionate about writing and I was passionate about food. And so when I started writing sort of more generally, a little more personally, that was helpful to me. So the answer to the, you know, what advice would I give? You might love what you're doing for the next 30 years and just be fine with that. Or you might love what you're doing for the next 30 days and need to find something else really fast. And I think it's, it's important to move on when it's time to, when it, when it's time to move on. If you're lucky enough to find something that enchants you and really delights you for the rest of your life, as I was talking about cooking, for example, if there's something that that really works for you, you just got to keep doing it. If you're lucky enough to have a career that in, that engages you in that way, then that's just the best. Yeah. Were there ever times in your career where you felt like, oh, it's time for me to move on? Well, it's funny because I think of myself in both ways. The cooking has been consistent and the writing I've always written. But I was a weekly columnist for literally 30 30 years, even more, 35 years. I, I had at least one deadline a week. And when I left that behind, that was like, that was really life changing. That was an interesting thing. And I did move on from that, although now I have weekly deadlines again, but that's okay. I'm enjoying it again, so it's fine. When you did move on from that, though, 30 years of doing the same thing, what what was the feeling after that? Was was it excitement? Was it fear? There was relief when I realized that I really wasn't going to have a that rhythm of deadlines every Tuesday, Wednesday kind of being relaxed. 
Thursday kind of starting to think, what am I going to do next week? And then escalating anxiety until the following Tuesday. When I realized that pattern was gone for me, I was really excited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very positive that it was a good shift. I know. I mean, after 30 years of doing something, I can only assume that that was a big change in your life. It was. Were there any times in your career, I always, I'm always interested about this, that you were just like, I'm, I'm not good enough to be doing this. Like as, as your notoriety increased, as you became really like a household name, were you just like, no, this isn't, I, I can't live up to this. The imposter syndrome thing. Yeah. When I first got the column at the Times in 1997, I mean, there were people who directly said to me, that should have been me, or I don't know how you got that, or, and that didn't feel great, needless to say, but I knew how I got it. And I thought I was as good a choice as any, but it was, it was surprising to me. And then I just kept thinking, well, what, what can I do that's better? And I just, some friend of mine once said to me, well, you're just a perennial malcontent. And, you know, I really haven't been satisfied. I always have been trying to do something that's even more interesting than what I was doing before. So, you know, I, I had a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago who said to me, I'm so overwork, I don't care about being relevant anymore. I'm just not interested. A guy my age is just not interested. And I said, well, that is what people sound like when they're retiring and I'm not. So, you know, at some point I may stop trying to do new stuff and do better stuff, but it I'm I'm not there. Well, thank goodness for all of us. We don't want <laughs> you to be there. But I think that's an interesting point too about staying relevant. I think that's that's a fear for people at 20 years old and people at 80 years old. Do you feel that that fear like everyone else does? Like, do you feel like you're just clawing at all times to keep up with social media and just everything that you need to do now to stay quote unquote revel- relevant? I mean, yeah, I want to be relevant. And I recognize that um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world that I know nothing about. I just don't know anything about. I don't really pay much attention to social media. I try not to be involved. I mean, for me, email is social media. It's very social and, and texting, I guess, and talking on the phone. I recognize that that's old fashioned and that's fine. I do, yeah, I do worry about losing relevance, but all I can do, I can't, you know, I can't sort of pretend to be younger and hipper than I am. I don't like doing video. I'm not interested in TikTok. It's fine. That's who I am. If, if my lack of interest in that stuff eventually makes me a dinosaur that nobody cares about. I mean, I'm already 73. It, things could hardly go in a really terrible direction at this point with my career, because you know, if it ended, it will have been a great career. So if you're not concerned about how other people think of you and your place in the world, and if you're important enough, air quotes around important too, but you know, if, if you, if you're relevant, if you're not concerned about that, I think that's kind of liberating in a way. Well, that is a beautiful point. I mean, then, because another question I ask is if you were to give advice to someone who is where you were when you started your career, what would it be? And I mean, in that regard, one piece of advice that sounds like you were saying is find a job that feels almost like your life, that feels like something you would do whether you were working or not. I mean, I think most people who are happy in their careers will say something like that. 
and and many people who are successful will say something like that. Because if you like what you're doing, there's a good chance you're good at it and and you'll stick around. And I can't remember who said 80% of success is just showing up, but that's, you know, that's really true. If you stick at what you're doing, other people who are less passionate or less good at it than you are, are going to fall by the wayside and eventually you'll be the last person standing. I mean, not quite, but but there is something to be said for sticking to Yeah. Well, and also, I just, I thoroughly appreciate that in everything you've done, you just seem like you are who you are. And yes, like relevancy is always, you know, what we're trying to do because when you stay relevant, people look at your things, but there's something to be said and something magnetic about someone who it just doesn't care about the little things that everyone cares about. And I mean, I guess, what would your message be for the younger demographic that I feel like we are all trying so hard to be like noticeable and to be different that we forget to be ourselves? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you can't. There's a Kurt Vonnegut line, which was, be careful who you pretend to be because that's who you'll become. And I think that being true to yourself is a, is a key to if not happiness, then at least not unhappiness, a key to a key toward toward being in tune with yourself. That's that's a beautiful gift. This has been great advice. I huh. could not have I could not have even like dreamt of better little tidbits to share with people. I do have some questions though that are like totally off book from advice. Okay. That I, I can't not ask you Go. having this time with Mark Bittman. That's so exciting. So, what would be one piece of cooking advice or food advice that you would give people? Um, you should really always cook what you want to eat. I mean, to the extent that you can. But the other thing is, this is a specific piece of advice for cooks. Don't go look at a recipe and then go to the store and buy that stuff. Just buy stuff that's good and keep it around in the house and then figure out what to make with the stuff that's in the house. That's... That's how people have always cooked. They've gone to the market, they've bought what looks good, and then they've come home and figured out what to do with it. Or they have some idea what they want to do with it. You can always find a recipe, but you can't always go find the ingredients that are in some particular recipe that you've decided to make. And I love that. I think it makes you a better cook too. You learn to be creative. I think we get so scared because we're like, if we don't follow a recipe to the T, we're going to ruin it all. So I think that's great. So there's, is there any recipe that you go back to all of the time? Like, what do you make most? I'm a little obsessed with tomatoes, more than a little obsessed. I have a freezer that's my tomato freezer. So I spend August and September filling that freezer with tomatoes. So there's like 50 or 75 pounds of tomatoes. It's a lot of tomatoes. And so I think I probably cook with tomatoes two times a week, which I, so I like that. And I've lived on this farm, which is part of a nonprofit that my partner runs. I don't really have anything to do with the farm, except I get to eat food from it. But I've been here seven years, I think I, and I do, I have come to eat even more seasonally than I did before because I almost never go to the supermarket now. So I'm not like, oh, those zucchini look really great. I'll have some zucchini tonight. I don't do that in January anymore. Yeah. I mean, maybe once in a while, but it feels like cheating. It does. It does. Of an eggplant in January, there's something wrong with that. I've never thought of that, but <laughs> yes, there is something wrong with an eggplant in January. Right. I guess too, when 
you're cooking like Mark Bittman, anything you make is going to be pretty incredible. So, yeah, although the stuff I made last night, I just, I really do want to emphasize it's things I've been cooking. I might tweak things a little bit here and there, but it's really stuff I've been cooking for most of my life. And it's not complicated. I mean, that was always, when I write about cooking, it's almost always about uncomplicated stuff. I'm not the best cook I know. I just know how to cook things that I like to eat. Yeah. Well, I love that. I uh, Last thing, I guess, is fill in the blank. Food is blank. Love. Everything. One of those two things. It's either everything or love. Oh, that is the best way we could end it. And in the words of Anthony Bourdain, you learn a lot about someone when you have a meal with them. And I think that to me has always been the beauty of food and the beauty of meals. So Mark Bittman, thank you so much for joining us on The Shift. This has been a wonderful interview. I can't believe I'm going to go make your no-need bread right after this and just have myself a day. But this has been so wonderful, and I'm sure so many people are going to be so inspired by what you said. So thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Christina. It's been fun. 